Hello and welcome to the OTP, the one true podcast for fanfiction readers, writers, and lovers. I am this episode's host and mod, Enthusiasm Girl. So last year we did an episode that a lot of people really loved, it's one of our more popular ones, where we talked about Daredevil and Defenders fandom. And we talked about it really as a way of examining what it means to be a brand new fandom and how fandoms slowly evolve, um, knowing as we did that the other Netflix Defender series were coming and that eventually they would converge in the same way that the Avengers eventually did. And this episode is the promised one that's going to examine that fandom in its second year. It's a little delayed, for which I do apologize. Um, in the last one, we focused on Daredevil Season 1 and Jessica Jones. And in this episode, uh, Birdie and Lita are going to join me and we delve into Daredevil Season 2 and Luke Cage. Uh, this was a really, really fun episode to record because I did go back and listen to the first episode again before we recorded it. And... Um, it was pretty apparent that we just couldn't have been more wrong in our first conversation about a lot of our predictions, uh, but also we were right in some surprising ways too. So overall, this project to track the fandom has been really interesting and worthwhile already. Now, because it is a little late, it actually is going to be also very entertaining for you to hear us fan out and provide some opinions about Iron Fist, because we recorded this conversation before that show dropped. And all I have to say about that right now is that... From my perspective, at least, disappointment doesn't even begin to cover it. Um, you can look at my Tumblr at enthusiasmgirl.tumblr.com and you can see that. But we will also get into that in more detail in our Defenders Year 3 episode, which will probably drop uh, in the fall after we've digested both Iron Fist and woot woot, uh, this week, in fact, they announced the date for the Defenders. And it might even be a little more delayed if we find out when the Punisher series is coming out. So uh, lots to talk about next time, but for now, I hope that you enjoy listening to us talk about the impact of season two on Daredevil fans and about Luke Cage fandom. Um, so I have Birdie with me, uh, who was part of last year's Daredevil and Defenders fandom episode, um, and I have Lena with me. Hi. So we're going to talk about Daredevil and Defenders fandom for the second time, coming in um, a little belated, because I think the last episode was in October, and I had wanted this one to be closer to uh, just after Luke Cage had come out, but it wasn't doable. So we're having it about, I would say, like a year and a half, right, after the last episode, Um and we're going to talk, as promised, about the way that fandoms evolve and the way that Daredevil fandom in particular has evolved in some ways that are both unsurprising to us based on our last conversation and also some ways that are really surprising. Um, so I want to start with kind of a brief recap of some things we discussed last year for those of you who don't remember the last episode. In that episode, we talked a little bit about um, Matt and Frank as a ship at the time. We were a little concerned post-season one about ship wars emerging based on the fact that we knew that Frank Castle was coming into season two. Uh, we talked a lot about kind of comic book fandom and Daredevil fandom and how a lot of comic book stuff had kind of been integrated into Daredevil fandom. We talked as well about Marvel fandom and the way that Daredevil fandom interacted with that. Uh, we went over kind of talking about Karen and the way that her character got treated by fans, and about Matt and Foggy as being the dominant ship in the fandom. 
And then we talked about Jessica Jones and kind of how its fandom was going just after it had come out and the fem slash happening in that fandom. So let's come back to Matt and Frank as a ship. Obviously, um, we're here a year, year and a half later. Uh, Birdie, you were part of that initial conversation with us. Did it turn out the way that we thought in terms of potential ship wars? It didn't really. Like, Matt and um, Frank didn't become as huge a ship as we all thought it was going to be. The Matt Foggy and um, Frank Matt didn't become this huge dividing thing in fandom of the two white guys, the three white guys you ship being fought against each other. It just didn't happen. I thought that would be the big thing that would come out of season two, that everyone would go, yep, the two white guys who have obviously got a fairly antagonistic um, relationship, let's you know, let's make them screw. We we said this a few times when we were talking about that ship, that we weren't objecting to it. We just thought people were kind of proactively jumping on it, and we hadn't seen Frank yet, and we'd wait and see. I am I'm definitely not anti that ship, right? I mean, oh, no. um, this the rooftop tying up scene. It really, to me, is like a scene that should have beget a just a lot more slash shipping than it did. Really. Well- it's not like it didn't get any. I mean, I based on the stats for Fic written since season two, Frank Matt was the third most popular ship and more popular than Matt Claire was after season one, which was pretty popular. So it didn't become like the big ship of season two, but it's not like it was a tiny ship either. It was pretty big. Oh, yeah. And it, well, I think we're just surprised that it didn't disrupt the Matt Foggy yeah. ship. I think it, that's I think part the of that. show disrupted the Matt Foggy ship. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a lot of it, right? Is that the mm. Matt Foggy shippers and even just the Matt and Foggy friendship kind of um, bro TP people. Season two, they had a really hard time with. And that kind of impacted whether or not Matt Frank people would be fighting with Matt Foggy people. And I think that both of those ships are healthy, but relatively not getting in each other's way. I think the more interesting thing is that last year we did talk quite a bit about Karen as a character and how fans had rejected her. And when I watched season two, I kind of remember thinking to myself... Gee, you know, I don't think fans will ship Frank Karen, but boy, I could see that. And then that became essentially a bigger ship almost in the fandom than Matt Foggy. It's the ship of the moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting to me that we were all expecting that Frank would be shipped so heavily with Matt. And I think it's a sign, uh, it's a good sign. It's a sign that Daredevil fandom has a really healthy ability at this point anyway to multi-ship and kind of live and let live when it comes to people's ships. Um, I think it's surprising to me that a headship like Matt Frank would just become as well, big as it became too. Well, the other thing is that Frank Karen doesn't interfere with Matt Foggy at all. So no. if you were a Matt Foggy shipper and you were struggling with what to write after season two because you, you know, due to the events of the season, weren't as into it, then you could go to frank karen and not feel like you're betraying your other ship and i think that in part we'll talk more about this in a little bit um frank karen is an interesting reaction to how fans felt about the canon ship of matt karen that the show kind of wants us to be invested in right um 
but yeah, I mean, it, it didn't go the way we had predicted last year, absolutely. And I also felt a little bit bad about the conversation we had last year on re-listening to it. And we did take some criticism for this after, and I think it's fair, that we sort of talked about Matt Frank in the context of why are people shipping this right now? Um, they have no context for it. And immediately followed that up with a conversation on how excited and happy we were that comic book fandom was bringing a lot more stuff into daredevil fandom and then we did we got some heat saying okay that's great that you just dismissed the matt frank ship while forgetting that most of the matt frank shippers maybe shipped it from the comics even pre-show and are bringing stuff in from the comic books can't fandom and canon with regards to frank like there are people who legitimately held that ship pre-show and were getting amped up for it not because they were like hey two sexy white guys but because they had already shipped that ship or loved the punisher comics and were getting really excited that it was going to come in to the show so i think i want to make sure i bring that point up too because when i re-listened to that show from last year i was like that's a really fair criticism that we kind of dismissed a lot of the Matt Frank people early on as, well, they're getting ahead of themselves. But there was already a history of Matt and Frank in the comics, too. Um, mm. Just to point that out. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, so what do you guys think about Matt Frank now as a ship? Now that we've seen the show, and Lita, you weren't part of the last conversation, so I'll start with you. How do you feel about Matt and Frank as a ship at this point in Daredevil fandom? Well, I mean, it definitely had a lot of kink meme prompts about it as kind of a, more of a target for kink than Frank Karen, I think. But it also, I mean, the show kind of ends in a weird place. And I feel like shipping a lot of things was a little difficult after season two, just because of where everything ended at the end of the season. Whereas after season one, it was pretty easy to speculate on what might be happening next. But I feel like season the way season two ended made that a lot harder. So a little harder to write fanfic period. So let's seg then, um, before we come back to that, into how season two ended. Because not every fan listening to this might actually be as invested or have even seen season yeah, two warning, of Daredevil. Spoilers. I actually saw <laughs> Yeah, warning spoilers. And I there were a lot of season one fans of Daredevil who actually played a kind of a wait and see game with season two and then decided not to watch it because of their response initially to, to season uh, two and how it shook out with the fans. And I don't think that's fair. I think season two has some merit, but I can understand why fans had a lot of problems with it and as you said it it's hard to write ship fic or to write fic in general coming out of season two so um, let's talk about that because the big thing that we're talking about when we say the ending of season two is one of those things is the divorce almost of nelson and murdoch right the they dissolved their legal partnership that fans were so attached to post season one um, and they essentially fought throughout most of that season. And they fought in ways that are not easily resolvable. They fought in ways where I would even say that fans, like, took it harder than the characters. Um, I've argued a few times that fans sometimes will write these fics as though they, they ended their last scene together in season two, screaming in each other's faces, wanting to punch each other, when that's kind of less how season two actually mm -hmm. ended. Um, they were fighting, but they kind of just ended it on a note of, we're going to dissolve our business partnership, who knows what happens next, Foggy has taken another job, working for the Jessica Jones character, Jerry Hogarth, um, and 
they're both just kind of in a place where you get the sense that they might still talk, but that they obviously couldn't be business partners. The main issue with it is that season one ended in a very hopeful way where you're just, everything's just kind of getting started and you're like, all right, we're all happy together. It's this, you know, nice resolution scene where they're all looking at the Nelson and Murdoch sign and everyone's like looking forward to the future. And then season two ends in a much more hopeless situation where, you know, the partnership has been dissolved and everyone's gone kind of their own separate way. And like, you know, people died and Matt's depressed and it's kind of like there's not that same like I want more of this you know because you're like oh that that was kind of a bummer I don't really know what comes next like for me I was really into season two because I loved Electra and so she's spoiler alert dead at the end of season two but (laughs) that means I get to write all the fic about before she died and like before season two and and all that kind of pre- canon stuff whereas if you're looking for like the what comes next it's not as easy especially if you're like me and you're trying to write things that are fluffier or you know have a lighter note to them in order to get to the point where you can write the characters doing that you have to in some way resolve the conflict to a point that you can have to have it at a point where it feels natural that the the nice happy things you want to write about would actually happen because you can't have you know, you could, you could write the happy stuff, but the thing is, you then have to deal with the. You still have to deal with what the conflict is, and you have to at least understand why it happened, and not blame one of the one of the other characters, which I have noticed happening a little bit. Yeah, it makes life a little harder for a fic writer. So you just either you ignore season two, or you just don't write. Well, the blaming is something I want to talk about because I feel like. In the early days after season two aired, it was much more intense than now. But there was kind of a tendency to pick a side happening. Like you would see arguments in forums talking about the show where people sort of felt the need to either say, you know, Matt is an epic asshole and fuck him and his choices. And he needs to grovel at Foggy's feet and he needs to stop being Daredevil immediately and how dare he. Or it was like the opposite of that, which was, well, Foggy just needs to be more supportive and he was behaving in a way that was just monstrous and his comments to Matt about him having a mental illness were so out of line and, and a lot of the reconciliation fic that would even be written was this kind of... Um, you could tell that the fans themselves were working through how they felt about a particular character's decisions. And there was a lot of like weird anger and spitefulness at one character sort of built into their reconciliation fic. Yeah, and there's also, don't forget the other category of people who say, well, this was all Electra's fault because if she hadn't shown up, then Matt wouldn't have started screwing everything up so badly. Yeah, and that's the other thing too. I think that some of the Nelson and Murdoch cooling off or some of the Nelson and Murdoch fans' frustrations weren't just that the show had them split up their partnership at the end. They also really had to do with the fact that season two aggressively was kind of about Matt's heterosexuality and his love life and a lot of the decisions that he made at the expense of Foggy were decisions he made where he wasn't caring about Foggy's feelings not just because of wanting to be with Electra, but also because of wanting to be with Karen like there was a lot of disregarding of Foggy's feelings on his part and that initial trio of Matt and Foggy and Karen together that people liked 
became a lot harder for you to polyship or a lot harder for you to see the three of them as friends or the three of them as all amicably getting together when literally the two of them are trying to date and kind of not even telling Foggy about it. And on top of that, Matt has all this other stuff going on that he's blowing both Foggy and Karen off about. It was interesting to see that because I think a lot of fans just really there were aspects of their own headcanons or there were aspects of their own ship that didn't get resolved in season two the way they wanted that kind of impacted how they felt about it. And I get the feeling that um, some of the people who were going on about Foggy not being supportive didn't watch all the way to the end of the last episode. They missed like the phone call he makes to Matt to help him and the fact that he turns up at the end of the roof. It's like, you guys are ignoring that in canon he is supportive of Daredevil, just gets the sense that it's not a great business plan to be supportive of Daredevil. Yeah, I got the sense it was like a business thing and it was kind of a like, I need a little space for Matt for a little while to figure out how I feel about this thing. Because you have to remember too that like they are in business together. So Matt doing what he does has a lot of implications for Foggy beyond just their friendship, right? And... A lot of the things that you see makes Foggy the angriest, yes, it has to do with Matt kind of killing himself, but it also has to do with the fact that Matt blows off a case, right? Like, Matt sticks Foggy with work, and there are financial implications and legal implications to things that Foggy will get wrapped up in through that. And so I think that a lot of their conflicts really just came from that, and that that final conversation they kind of have... I think the last conversation most fans remember is the one where they both agree that they're relieved that they're not angrier at each other. Like, this is finally over. This is done. We can walk away clean. And they miss the fact that they're talking about the business partnership, not the friendship. And then in, like, the very next moment when Matt is trying to figure out how to get into the where the hand will be... Foggy is the one who puts his box down, goes over and tells him a story about his grandfather and says, hey man, like, no hard feelings, let me help you out here with something from my grandfather of finding a hand, right? And like you said, Matt picks up his call, you know, Foggy is very angry when he talks to him because he's mad about what happened to Brett, but Matt picks up and Foggy then goes to see what's going on, right? Yeah, but I think it's Mm. it's also been, I mean... It's been pretty clear throughout the whole show that Foggy doesn't really approve of Matt being Daredevil. Yeah. And he would rather that Matt was not Daredevil. I think that's pretty evident. Absolutely. No, I think that that's there. I mean, he's like, yeah, he's gotten to the point where he was like, okay, this is just not my problem anymore, basically. Yeah. But for a while there, he was like, oh, I don't know if I could deal with this. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that he was trying to figure out what the boundaries were between him and Daredevil versus him and Matt, too. And I don't think mm-hmm. Matt was making that stuff easy for him to do, too. Because, um, like, my favorite scene, my favorite scene in season two is the early one in, I think it's episode one or two of that season, where they're walking down the street and Foggy kind of has to stop to tell him he's bleeding. Episode one. Yeah. Um, it made my heart hurt <laughs> because it was obvious that Foggy was just so upset that Matt would just be bleeding in the middle of the street and kind of not care. And he was really concerned. (laughs) And Matt's, Matt's attitude to him about it was kind of, they probably had had that conversation a dozen times before the one that we saw, but Matt's attitude about it was kind of a blow off a little bit. Like he was like, this is why I do this Foggy. And you know that, and I have to, and what do you want from me? So there, there were tensions mm-hmm. there for sure that were interesting. 
Um, and like I said, it's it's kind of an irreconcilable difference kind of thing, which makes it very hard for fans to figure out how do you move to a point where you can reconcile them. Yeah. And also, I think what Birdie was saying, too, in, in fanfic, if you want to write fluff, you don't necessarily want to write the fix-it fic. Yeah. You want to write the fic that happens after the fix-it fic. And the fix-it fic is a lot of work yeah. at this point. So I think a lot of people are like, well, I don't want to put the work into figuring out how they fix things just so that I can write the fic that comes yeah. afterwards. So, I mean, it results in a lot of ignoring of season two entirely, right? Like, most of the Matt Foggy that I've seen since season two has been college fluff. Like, it's just been college fic, or it's been ignoring it entirely. Yeah, well, don't forget also that after season two, a whole lot of new viewers came who watched season one for the first time. Yeah. And so there's still people out there who are writing fic based on season one who maybe they saw season two or they didn't see season two yet, and they're just, you know catching up basically well i will say that the influx of new writers has been enormous i think that probably as many new writers have come in now who love the show um as much as the early writers as people who left who are writing it earlier right like um i've noticed that that definitely there's an influx and that goes into the fact that you can even see it in the fact that the the daredevil kink meme was kind of where those early fans lived and it's basically dead and there's not a lot of Karen Frank prompting or the kinds of prompts for stuff that's being written now happening on that kink meme. And it really is just that an entirely new influx of fans who live somewhere else have come in, right? Um, and they're on Tumblr and they're on AO3 and they're just doing their own thing, but they're there. So we talked a little bit about the divorce of Nelson and Murdoch, but let's talk about some of the other issues that people had with season two and some of the other ways that they responded to season two. Because um, there were some, I think, also legitimate problems that fan fiction writers had with season two of the show. The timeline. Yeah, the timeline is the big one. <laughs> the timeline. Oh my god. Bertie, do you want to explain the issue for people listening? Um. Okay, so I got really up about this when it first came out and I've not gotten much better since. The timeline makes no goddamn sense, especially with the Christmas ending. Like you can, you can make the timeline work so long as you don't have that ending at Christmas, because it's in the dead of summer at the very beginning of the season, and then it's at the end of your winter. It's the middle of your winter by the time it ends. But in order for it to do that, that means it's what that's six months. Mm -hmm. There is not six months to show. In, like, there's not six months passing in the show. The first four episodes take place in a day or so. I think there's one or two you can stretch out to make it a week, give it a gap between, because there's a funeral. But yeah, it's just like, it doesn't, the, the timeline's really condensed. And then the next few, there's at least two or three other episodes that take place in a single day or two or three days. And it's like, the, the biggest time skip is between the scene on the rooftop where Electra dies. And her funeral, that's the time you can get most of the time skipping, which, again, makes not much sense. I guess I just assumed that the scene with Karen just took place way after all of the other stuff that had happened. Because but there's snow on the, there's snow on the ground. I didn't think about the funeral. The, um, I, I didn't think the about the funeral. There's snow on the ground at the funeral. There's also issues related to the timeline, too, for me, where Frank, if... if even if you accept that it is condensed, Bertie, if you took out that Christmas ending, 
it still makes no sense because you can't have a complete murder trial for one of the most notorious murderers in U.S. history in like a week. That's not how it happens. Jury selection followed by I think that pre-trial yeah, hearing. Well, I think that was the point where I said you could get most of the timeline to like you get a lot of a few weeks of skipping, but it's still very condensed. Well, yeah, and the show doesn't seem to imply like a montage style skipping ahead of time either, in terms of how the characters behave with each other. The uh, speaking timeline wise, like when I said the timeline, what I was thinking of was that stupid 10 years earlier card. That too. Oh, that, that too. Because that is the biggest, like the whole thing makes zero sense. Did Matt and Foggy meet in undergrad? Did they meet in law school? Did they meet in undergrad and then go to law school together? Was it 10 years ago? Did they just graduate? Did they spend 10 years in law school? Yeah. Like, it well, and it makes no sense. I will say this. Fans had been debating whether or not that first meeting scene we see in Nelson B. Murdoch was in undergrad or was in law school. And whether they had known each other for a full, like, seven years. They had started at Columbia and just stayed on. Or whether they had only met in law school. Fans had been debating that for a while preseason yeah. two. And that makes no sense either anyway. Because, like, in that scene... They're meeting in like a undergrad freshman dorm room, the kind where you have two beds in one room, which is not how law students have dorm rooms because, right. you know, my sister went to law school and I went to her dorm room and it didn't look like that. And but then his on his laptop, he's signing up for law classes. Right. Which I so mean, it's in my mind, he could be an undergrad, but taking, for example, like a pre-law Pro, d- diploma because they have those where you can take criminal justice as your diploma maybe so for my mind sure but what bothers me too is that even if you accept that 10 years earlier tag as evidence that it's undergrad it's that's still not when they would have been in undergrad unless they took a few years off right so my the question mm-hmm. that makes you ask yourself is okay so 10 years earlier means it had to have been undergrad yet every time you see them conversing about it sometimes they will call it law school so like in literally two uh, you know one of the first episode of the season scenes uh foggy makes a crack about matt having seen him be, know he's a good dancer from law school which implies they met in law school. And on the other hand of that, again, 10 years earlier still makes no sense. Like, how long had they been graduated when you see them at that internship in Landman and Zach, right? How long did they take before they passed their bar? Well, and when they're talking about when Matt met Electra, they use the term in college. Like, they always talk about he knew Electra in college, but I, I mean, maybe this is different elsewhere in the world, but speaking as an American, you don't call law school college. Like college means undergrad. College doesn't mean any kind of postgraduate education. You wouldn't say I met them in college if you met them in grad school. So it's... Yeah. So like some things implied law school, some things implied undergrad. Ten years makes no sense anyway. And that fancy party, that fancy party that Matt and Foggy are crashing when, uh, when they meet, when Matt meets Electra. That kind of party is the kind of thing that law professors have in law school, like, because I, I, I'm trying not to like extrapolate too much. My sister went to law school in New York, and there are lots of fancy, fancy parties that law students at fancy law schools in New York go to. Go to, but not crash, because it was implied that they snuck in. So, sure. I mean, you can get around it a little bit. Yeah, I... I but it basically, yeah, I, the whole thing makes no sense. It's just they just had some sloppy yeah. writing there and some sloppy set design, and someone wasn't paying attention. 
which makes it really hard to write fanfic. Absolutely, because you can't agree on it with anybody. And not only that, but again, this is a thing that fans were already debating. If anything, season two made them more confused and unable to agree more, not less, despite the fact mm-hmm. that we saw some more of them in college. Like, it just makes no sense. They could have completely avoided all this confusion by not putting in uh, 10 years ago and just saying, at law school or at college. Or, well, yeah. yeah, or or just thinking it through, like, for a little more. And, and again, same thing with the actual in-show. I think the problem with these Netflix shows is that when you're creating, like, a broadcast show that airs every week, you are usually anchoring the timeline to when the episodes are airing, right? Like, you're usually not airing an episode a week and having everything, unless, unless it's, like, 24, right, where it's specific. With Netflix, sometimes it's just very hard to get a sense of when things are supposed to be happening in any Netflix series. But I think in particular with Daredevil, the timeline you're right, Birdie, of the actual season makes no sense. It makes no sense how fast Frank's trial is. It makes no sense how fast Grotto's funeral would be. It makes no sense how fast Electra's funeral would be. It makes no sense what stories is Karen writing for the bulletin. Yeah. Right? Karen getting that job also makes no sense. No, it doesn't. And <laughs> the the angry thing to me about that not making any sense was that like first off, why do they have Ben's office sitting there if they're such a broke paper? <laughs> like they would have hired a new person. They wouldn't be keeping his office like all that time later. And second off, what gets me about that is the job of a reporter is she's doing the job of a research assistant. What makes a good reporter is the ability to string a sentence together on a page. It's it's an English language job. It's not, and she's shown no capacity to do that. Um, and not only that, but what really gets me is that between the time that he seems to, Ellison seems to hire her, he's discussing with her in one of the final scenes in season two, her article on Frank Castle in a way that suggests that she hasn't written anything yet and that he's still waiting on that one article she's supposed to have written six months ago as opposed to covering everything after. And it turns into, like, an opinion piece, which, again, makes no sense. You paid her to do all this research. Um, I just, I feel like, like, I would believe that, you know, maybe Karen's a good writer and it's just not shown on screen, but the fact that he hires her without even a writing sample yeah is what it just like that doesn't make any sense she would not get but then i mean the trial also makes no sense yeah that part where matt goes in and like goes off during the questioning section goes off about like the nature of of justice or i don't even remember he gives some (laughs) big long speech and i was like this isn't closing arguments why are you still why are you talking about this well and and there's just a lot of kind of really sloppy like 50 year old tropes that just uh the you know the blatant nationalistic racism of every gang in the daredevil universe like the irish gang who all look like they just got off the boat and they're having a giant catholic funeral and all have ginger hair and drinking and the the hand being so blatantly just kind of asian ninja that's literally all the thought they put into that Um, And then you have, like, the Colombian cartel who get a mention, and the entire thing about them is that they're Colombian and they deal drugs, and that's it. Um, There were a lot of, like, sloppy shortcuts that ended up feeling so generic. I think that they, well, mostly I think they just didn't think it through, um, because it means it alienates anyone who has any sort of understanding of 
the even just the basics of the professions that you guys we're talking about. Because um, if you know anything even vaguely about how to be a lawyer or how to be a um, reporter, you're going to be a bit that doesn't make any sense, and you're not going to be too impressed with the show. And it just sort of shows. I think that's the main issue that really came out of season two is that the writers were a little bit lazy in what they in anything. They got really good about the characters and the plot. Well, somewhat okay about the plot. They got really lazy on a lot of details. And when people look at those details, they're like, but some of that is really actually quite important. And you've just completely ignored it because you wanted to go more about the characters. I feel too like they were there. If you watch those fight scenes, they obviously have a whole staff full of martial artists and stuff that they consult for all those fight scenes, you know? Like, you, the second hallway scene that they did where he's taking on the entire gang along with Fra- uh, trying to save Frank, like, that stuff is so detailed. So it's then really weird when there's this, like, 70s-era trope-filled stuff showing up. And I think it's especially unfair from the perspective of people who really are hoping for better Asian representation. I think the hand and the kind of lazy racial shortcutting of the gang members... Like, if you're Hispanic, it's awesome because you have Claire and you have certain characters you can look to, but then a Colombian cartel who just, they're drug dealers because they're Colombian, is super just lazy in the worst way. It's almost like a fanfic in that you get the some you get lots of people who are like, why did I don't know about this and I didn't bother to research, but it's fanfic so I can sort of hand wave it and you'll, everyone will understand and they do for the most part. But then you get the ones that are like, they've got one part really, really right. And then the bits that they've not bothered to research stand out as you've got that completely mm-hmm. wrong or mostly wrong. And it, because they got that one bit so right, everything else is much worse. It, may, it comes off as being worsely, like more poorly researched than it probably actually was because they've got that one, yeah. least one part of it really well and right. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, if the whole show was terrible, we wouldn't care about any of that. But since it is a good show, then the parts where they screwed up really are like, what were they doing? Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't think any of the critiques that I've seen about Asian representation in the MCU with regards to Daredevil and kind of people being concerned about Iron Fist, I don't think those are off base at all. Like, okay. I th- the, the hand as a villain, like... For a lot of people, they really may have even enjoyed the first half of the season with everything with Frank, and it was in the back half where it fell apart, and it's not the fault of Elektra, and we'll, we'll talk about Elektra in a minute. I think it's it's the fault of the Hand being such a just boring villain who fell into every bad trope of the Hand who they didn't really try to bring anything to that was all that interesting. Lita, how do you feel about the hand as a villain in the back half of that season? I feel like they just didn't... They could have done a lot more than they did. Like, they don't... The the leaders of the hand are... Everything is just so vague and shadowy and, like, mystical ninjas that... Yeah, we're <laughs> waving our hands around here. Mystical ninjas, like jazz hands. But <laughs> they don't... You know, like, they have at least one character. At least they have Nobu who has a name. But we don't know anything about Nobu. Literally all we know about him is that he won't die. And he's in the hand. Like, where did he come from? What's his background? I don't know. Who knows? What about all those other people who were involved in the hand? There was some white lady, who too, who was 
like seemed to be pretty high up in the hand and she was speaking Japanese. Who was she? I don't know who she was. It's just, they're all so, so vague. And then the one kid um, who Electra killed, who was that guy? I, I don't know. Yeah, the show doesn't care about him at all, like as a person yeah. who she killed. And yeah, well, and- same way it didn't care when Matt killed killed Nobu last season so much for his, like, I don't kill people because I'm Daredevil. Oops, I set this guy on fire and burned him alive. He doesn't count because he's an immortal ninja, which Matt didn't know, but okay. He, he weirdly, there's like a character beat in season two where it looks like he, that gets brought up and he vaguely has regrets about it. And then the show just kind of goes, oh, but you didn't really kill him, Matt. So Well, it was good. self-defense, I guess. So, And I think that the, um, the Naboo's character being fairly one-dimensional one really, really stands out when you compare him to Wilson Fisk, like the bad yeah. guy from last season. Well, right. Or they even spent, to Stick. Yeah, they spent ages building them up, and then this guy's got nothing. Well, this is the thing. is This is a show that is, is one of its trademark calling cards in season one was that it built out one of the most complex villains in the Marvel Cinematic Universe because it had a season to do it. And it made him as interesting as Matt. And you look at the beginning of the season, Frank is as interesting as Matt. He had a villain to play off of who was, you know, up there. And it's really disappointing then that the second half of that season has a really flat villain. Like, there's a lot of fan fiction about Fisk. And there's a lot of fan fiction about Frank. And there's a fair bit of fic that gets into the villains of the show. But you can't write anything about the hand. They're generic ninjas. That's it. And the most menacing information that you get of why they feel like a threat comes in a giant exposition dump from Stick. Like, it comes from... Let me explain to you why these guys are the worst, Matt, because even you don't seem all that interested or threatened by them at this point. I mean, arguably, you could say that the villain, I guess, of season two, the antagonist of season two, second half, could be Elektra. And they did spend a lot of time fleshing out Elektra. And she is, like, the the, the big bad, or she's implied to be, like, about to become the big bad. Um, so, I mean, maybe they just didn't invest in all these other characters because when we get to Defenders or, you know, whenever the hand stuff all comes together, maybe Elektra is going to be the primary villain. And now we know all this stuff about Elektra, so she is pretty fleshed out. But I feel like each, in each section, they need, like, they, they're good at fleshing out one person and they did it for Elektra. They did it for Stick, but they didn't do it for the people in the hand. Well, and to me, it was a show don't tell thing because to have Stick sit there with Matt and basically say, let me tell you the whole history of why the hand should be more menacing to you than they are. It kind of bothered me because it's like you can't find a way to actually show that level of a threat on screen. You really think throwing a bunch of creepy kids and a giant <laughs> literal plot hole at audiences and not explaining them is going to seem menacing and like a threat. And it makes well, me worried for the defenders if that's well, going to be the central thing. But, but don't forget that after stick had that giant exposition, Matt was just like, that's a pile of shit. I don't believe you, which if yeah. they had actually like shown it to be a threat, he wouldn't be able to totally dismiss it and say, I don't believe anything you're saying. That's garbage to him but if they'd shown things to the audience to imply the threat Mm -hmm. i think it would have been a little bit better well i mean they're certainly creepy that whole thing with like draining people's blood into a machine and all those people were like like brainwashed into like sacrificing themselves like that was pretty darn creepy creepy. but very vague we just didn't get the 
we didn't get like who's the mastermind and why are they doing it yeah and all we get from the the chaste side is we just get that stick and his people were just trying to stop the hand but i, I don't know the hand wants power question mark i I, I just really hope that it doesn't continue to be that vague in the Defenders, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because they've got Sigourney Weaver, and it's it could be so good, but they just need to figure out what to do with the hand besides, hey, they're ninjas. Generically mm-hmm. vague ninjas. Only one of whom has a name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of kind of vague racism in the show, though, um, I feel like we need to address something again from the last conversation, which was another thing that people kind of said to me after that episode. And again, it's totally true, is that we talked about the way that Ben Urich and certain other minority characters were not being written about as much. And we talked about Karen and the way that, you know, fans treated Karen. We did not talk about Rosario Dawson and Claire nearly as much as we should have, given her enormous importance um, to the show um, mm-hmm. and her awesomeness and the fact that she's now kind of the Coulson of the TV Netflix Marvel Universe pulling everybody together. It was hope that she doesn't fit, share Coulson's fate. Yeah, and I think it was a hard season for Claire this season too for people writing about her because she ended the season quitting her job and because she's hooking up with Luke now. So the Claire Matt shippers are just oh, having yeah, that... a hard time. The uh, in the statistics I pulled, Matt Claire went from the second most popular ship after Matt Foggy to like way down the list. There's only 32 fics written since season two that were Matt Claire. Yeah, I think there was an agreement that Claire was just better than Matt <laughs> after season two. Well, I mean, Claire, I mean, she basically was like, I'm not going to deal with your crap, Matt. I'm not going to date you because it's not worth my time, <laughs> which is, yeah. you know, good for her. She made the right call there. But as a shipper, it's hard to find, a, to think of any scenario at this point in which they would get together unless it's like by necessity. Yeah. And I mean, she's obviously busy because Luke Cage gave her so much fun stuff to do. Right. Jessica um, Jones too. Not as much. There was more in Luke Cage than in Jessica Jones, but she's, but I think I think I looked at the Jessica Jones fanfic and I thought Claire was on the list somewhere of Yeah, she's there are several fics about Jessica slash Claire as well. Yeah, and I mean it's a shame that we did not bring her up the last time because uh, fans of Daredevil love her. There's a lot of great fic about Claire out there. Um, there's Jessica Jones fic out there now about Claire. There's Luke Cage fic now out there about Claire. And as a character, she is somebody who is important to Daredevil fandom. Um, and she's again, kind of universally loved too. I don't know anybody who dislikes she, Claire. Like, yeah, pretty exactly. much every other character. So there's somebody out there who hates them. But I don't Claire's think just too perfect to be hated. <laughs> well i mean she just kind of comes in and doesn't take any of matt's crap and and to be fair i mean again talking post season two as well and why people had a problem with it matt is his decisions in season two are pretty hard for you to really want other characters to have to put up with him (laughs) Mm -hmm. in many respects 
but yeah, so I thought it was important that we bring her up and we say, you know, we didn't forget her. Um, I think it really is just that she's so universally loved that there's not a lot of controversy or things to really talk about with regards to Claire, except that everybody loves Claire. Like, her relationship with Matt is really interesting. Her relationship with Luke and with Jessica is really interesting. And Her and I Foggy hope that- in season two oh, had some yes. great moments. They did. I wrote a, I wrote a Foggy yeah. and Claire fic. That's my favorite. Probably one of my favorite moments. moments. And she was um, definitely really involved. Really that, involved that in Luke is, Cage. She was. And that moment was nice because that moment with Claire between her and Foggy, to me, was like this moment of both of them being like, you're a very impressive person. And I wasn't expecting that. Like, because, because he's kind of really immediately impressed by her ability to take no shit. And then she seems not that impressed with him. And then he has this speech where he tells off the two guys fighting in the hospital and talks them down. And she just gets this look on her face like, you're Well, okay. shit, you're, you're good. Yeah. You're good. Okay. So it was, you don't take shit either. Okay. Like, you can kind of see them scheming of, like, how do we tag team Matt then and just both of us not take his shit and make him listen? Um so that was enjoyable. Um, but I, yeah, Claire had a lot in Luke Cage. So let's, let's talk a little bit about Luke Cage and Defenders fandom now. Let's seg a little bit. Um, cause, uh, initially when I started doing the podcast about Daredevil, I really do want to talk about as we head to Defenders fandom, what we think that Defenders fandom is going to look like in the same way that Avengers fandom was extremely different than just Iron Man fandom or just Thor fandom initially. And what did we think of Luke Cage? Um, Bertie, I'm going to come to you for that. First off, I loved it. Like, it was one, it was great. It was a good show. Like, it, some of the stuff it did was just so good. And I was, by the end of it, I was like, I really like this show. And then I've been trying to write a fic for it since, and I've never, I haven't quite managed to finish it yet, which is bad on me. But it's just, I've noticed that the fandom doesn't seem to be writing as much Luke Cage as I really think it should be it deserved. It's a different show to Daredevil, though. It is 100% a different show, and you can, like Jessica Jones was, but even more so. And it's unapologetic for the fact that it is very, I'll say it's very, some of the stuff in it I didn't get the reference. I don't understand some of the stuff they were talking about. I'm like, but it's okay, I wasn't probably wasn't supposed to because it's just not. It's not for me, and I don't mind. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I appreciate how unapologetically, um, from their specific perspectives of their lead characters, both Luke Cage and Jessica Jones are, because in the same way that there were references and things emotionally that I couldn't connect to with Luke Cage, uh, there were definitely stuff. I talked to men who watched Jessica Jones, and they still a lot of them enjoyed it, but they were like, there's just a lot of stuff in it that was so specific to women's experiences too. So. For the fact that both of those shows can be just so completely um, comfortable with not caring it, about the default perspective of anybody who might be watching and just kind of be able to live in the experiences of their title characters that way is something I really appreciated about Luke Cage. And the music in it was fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. I, that was an aspect I wasn't expecting to be so amazing, and it was. And... I think that Luke as a character is is very fascinating. Like, the notion that he's an outsider to New York City, but that at the same time he's protecting that community makes him a little bit different, right, than uh, mm-hmm. Jessica or Matt, who are kind of from that area where it's, it's their home base, right? Lita, mm-hmm. what did you think of Luke Cage? I liked it. I mean, I... I think for for me personally, I enjoyed Jessica Jones more than Luke Cage. Um, But I think that's partially because I just got 
to be honest, I got confused about the plot in in Luke Cage. There was a lot of moving parts between um, the gangs and the storyline with Luke, and I got a little overwhelmed by the plot details. But I still really enjoy the show, and I definitely hope that it gets you know more seasons and that there are more shows like that out there. Yeah, and I mean, it was really to me cool to see Claire as a character evolving, like mm-hmm. um, from Daredevil, where you saw her kind of being run down, being an underappreciated nurse, to like now she's quit her job, now you meet her mom, and now you see her pushing a doctor out of the way to like tell mm-hmm. the doctor what to I, do with regards to I do. To I Luke. have to say, like, I love Claire, but she's not a doctor. And I think they forgot that they made her an, a nurse because they have her doing this stuff. And I'm like, no, she doesn't know how to, she, why what does she know how to do this stuff? Like nurses are great. I'm not saying that like nurses don't know how to do stuff, but I mean, there's a reason that surgeons do surgery and like nurses don't do surgery. Like it's that, that I, I have to say that bothered me a little bit that they're getting to the point where like Claren just knows how to do everything medical. It's like, <laughs> She's just like the perfect, brilliant person. And I'm like, I don't think she knows everything. Like, give her something that she doesn't know how to do. <laughs> I I think that's fair. But I also think that, you know, you don't know her background either. You don't know if she contemplated going to medical school or. And, and what I liked about that scene was that she clearly is kind of out of her depth. Like, she knows, but she's throwing stuff at the wall the same way the doctor mm-hmm. is. Like, the only reason it succeeds yeah. is because the doctor doesn't know any more than she does what the goddamn hell to do, right? Yeah. Um, and it was interesting. And I I liked the way that Luke Cage kind of got into his relationship with Reva, and it added a lot more layers than what we saw in Jessica Jones. Mm-hmm. It built that out. Um, I think, it, again, it was a little bit of, like, the whole thing about Diamondback being his brother was a little too convenient for me. <laughs> I, don't, I think for me, the, the, my favorite thing about the Luke Cage show was probably Mariah. Yes. She yes. was really fascinating. She had a lot of layers and that scene where, um, you know, more spoilers, where it's where he's telling her like, oh, you got out of this because you got sent away. But I know you really like where he's basically telling her she wanted to be abused by her uncle. And she's like don't you dare say that and yeah. murder, murders him. And I thought that was just like such a powerful scene. I don't, I don't know. I really liked her. She was yeah. my favorite part. Yeah. That entire family and their history with New York city was really interesting and complex. And I, I did really love that the show went there in terms of her relationship mm-hmm. with Cottonmouth and where they, where their perspectives both came from, I thought was really interesting. Yeah. And well, yeah. And like, you get to this point where like you, you kind of feel bad for Cottonmouth because you see like his background of like, he didn't even want to be involved in this in the first place. But, but then you've got Mariah who is like currently not theoretically not involved. Right. At first, but she's the one who ends up like killing him because he's, you know, like, yeah, he didn't want to be involved in this in the first place, but he's also not a great person. Like, nobody is a great person. I thought that was interesting. And I do like that her acting and killing in Cottonmouth and then the later part of the season makes him one of the first female villains in Marvel, just flat out, which is really cool. I like that they did go there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's one of the more complex ones. Her and Shades has been the number one ship to come out of Luke Cage, too. 
I was gonna say, I know that most of the fic being generated for Luke Cage mm-hmm. that I've ever seen is Mariah and Shades, and mm-hmm. it's interesting to me that people picked up on that, because it, it's especially interesting in the context of, um, I mean, it happened with, like, Kilgrave fic, and it happened with Karen Frank, where there's a tendency to write villain fix where it's, like, the villain is shipped with someone who isn't necessarily a villain in, in a in either a more complex or a more reductive way, but there's this tendency towards villain shipping. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see Mariah Shades only because the female is the villain. Like, Shades is pretty evil too, but it's 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 an interesting take on a trope in fan fiction that's kind of more common from a different angle. To me, I think, not exactly, but in some ways, Mariah Shades feels a lot to me like Hannibal and Will Graham, except... <laughs> not like it's like there's one person who's kind of like getting dragged into being their darker self and the other person is just kind of encouraging them along that path yeah and i think with mariah what's interesting though is that usually i feel like fans would complain about that dynamic of a villain corrupting a female character but at the same time with mariah you don't because you feel like she's probably more evil than shades in the long run like there's definitely evil tendencies there he's not nurturing anything that she doesn't like want him to be nurturing yeah i mean the first thing she does after he talks to her about doing things is to if you ever call me a bitch again it'll be the last time you do it basically so she's mm-hmm. quite clearly is just as bad as he is she's just never bothered to let it out It's actually really interesting to me, too, to think about the context of that and then Daredevil having Karen Frank be such a big ship, because I think Karen Frank has not a similar dynamic to Mariah Shades, but there is an element there of, like, yes, she might soften up Frank, but she has kind of a darkness in her that means that she's probably already closer to being on the same page as him than than she is towards being good. It's interesting. I'm really curious. Like, I, I have not, I will admit, I have not read any of the Karen Frank fic because it's not not my particular interest. But I don't know, like, of the Karen Frank fic, what direction does it usually take? Like, what are the common tropes in that ship? I don't know if either of you guys have read much of it. Like, is it usually Karen turns Frank into a good guy? Is it Frank takes Karen on a killing spree? Or is it like, they both just do their own thing and do it their own thing together you know i haven't read a lot of it i will not lie um but the few that i saw like the few that i've read and i've seen they don't seem to necessarily be about domesticating frank in the way that you might assume would happen in a ship like that um a lot of them seem to kind of be about the fact that they they kind of take off of that scene where karen was screaming at him you know, if you do this, then there's no coming back and I won't be here. Like, Mm -hmm. it's kind of playing off of that, of the fact that Karen can never replace his wife, but she's, like, somebody who just makes him think twice. Like, the fact that she even thinks he could be a good man at all gives him kind of a pause, even though he knows he isn't. But at the same time, he also knows the darkness that's in her more than that in Foggy, and so... There's a weird kind of like uh, them existing yeah. in a place where they're just who each other needs at a particular mm-hmm. time, which you, actually that makes sense. Yeah, and I don't know. I we're kind of like straying from where your topic was, but if you wanted to continue straying, I think that would be a good segue into talking about Matt Karen 
because I feel like that Karen's dark side is the part that I, my expectation is in the future seasons of Daredevil will actually bring them together. Yeah, I think that, I think we'll talk about it because we haven't yet. Um, and yeah, I mean, you're right. I think Matt Karen, um, a lot of the hatred, like, and it was, there was a lot of actual real hatred to Matt Karen. And it was in a similar vein to the hatred you see for something like Sharon Steve, where it's, it's, the hatred seems to be more, hey, this doesn't feel like natural chemistry. You're kind of forcing it down our throat. And um, what was interesting to me about Matt Karen was, I personally felt like the show, I I don't think that Charlie Cox and and Deborah have ever had as much chemistry as she's had with other people, right, to begin with. But at the same time, I think some of that lack of chemistry was, like, supposed to be there on purpose because the, the Karen and Matt that you see trying to date in season two are dating fictions, right? Like, Karen has a fiction in her head of who she thinks Matt is. And and who she needs him to be, which is, like, the good guy who is harmless, really, because she thinks he's blind. Let's face it, that's co- probably part of her thinking. Except for why when she, she thinks he's an alcoholic. Well, yeah, but, I mean, she you saw, I think that even goes yeah. back to my mind in the scene in season one where she undresses in front of him, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you don't know what her relationships with men have been like, but you get the sense she's got a weird history. And he would seem very harmless, and he would seem like somebody who needed her more than she needed him, right? Like, there's a sense that she's looking for somebody to kind of take care of a little bit and, and have that relationship with where he's kind and he's smart and he's gonna, he doesn't want to be alone. So she, he has a need for her, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's how she's looking at him um, because she wants to be that person and she knows she isn't. And then he's looking at her as, like, the sweet girl next door who is as passionate as he is about certain things. Um, And he has this image in his head of who she is, who he's looking for in a similar way, right? And they're dating fictions. They're, They're with fictions who they feel like they need and they don't actually know the truth about each other. And to me, the the point that you really see that is in the scene where she starts to defend Frank when they're doing case stuff. And he starts to get really Mm -hmm. upset with her. Like, you don't actually believe that what Frank is doing is right, do you? Because it's like the first time he's kind of realizing that she might not be the person he thinks that she is. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have like a whole like elaborate, like meta thought about how this has evolved over the course of the seasons. But I I have to disagree about them not having chemistry. I felt like they had a ton of chemistry, all of the scenes where they're like there's all this like touching and like everything is I don't know what the right word is it's like the the feeling of being close enough to feel someone's body heat without touching them like that's the kind of chemistry that I felt yeah. like they had and that scene where they're kissing on the doorstep I could watch a gift set of that for like 10 years that was a, an amazing yeah. kissing scene I didn't say they have no chemistry. I just said that I don't think so far she's shown the same kind of chemistry with Charlie that she has with other actors. I think some of that's the scenes that they've been given. And I think you're right. There's like a sexual tension in the scenes where she's undressing or when they're almost kissing. But I think that the scenes where they're outside of that, the scenes where they're actually interacting as two characters Mm -hmm. who are trying to date each other, 
I think they give off a vibe of awkwardness and why are these people together that to audiences, because audiences know these characters for who they are, and the two of them don't. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think, I think what the show was trying to tell us during season two is that, you know, Matt was having difficulties with Foggy because Foggy doesn't want Matt to be Daredevil. And then Matt's whole thing with Elektra is that Elektra doesn't want him to be Matt Murdock. She only wants him to be Daredevil. And so there's those two tensions going on throughout season two. And Karen doesn't know that he's Daredevil and he doesn't know that she's doing all this stuff with Frank. And I think what the show is trying to set up is that Karen actually is a good choice for him because she approves of both Daredevil and Matt Murdock, whereas none of the other people that he's been with have approved of both of those sides of him. Now, I'm not saying yeah, she's I mean, there I... yet, but I, I see that being where the show is going in the future. Yeah, and I, I think I would agree with you. I think that once they both have all their cards on the table, I think that she'll probably evolve into somebody who it makes sense for Matt to be with. But I really do think that him initially dating her was a kind of in contrast to Electra. He doesn't want to be with, like, the evil person who could murder somebody. Like, he doesn't, he's not looking to be with somebody that complicated. And he's looking at Karen as, like, uncomplicated, likes him, girl next door, sweet, needs him to protect her. Like, they're just looking at each other from a very different angle. Well, I mean, they're both keeping secrets from each other, too. Karen still hasn't told anybody that she killed Wesley. Right. That's, I mean, that's a pretty big secret that she's been keeping this whole time. So they're neither of them is being honest with each other. Yeah. And I think fans were also angered by the fact that she took love advice from Frank Castle. That scene was so, oh my God, some people love that scene. I thought it was terrible. It didn't make any sense. His advice was awful. Yeah, his advice is just not right either. Like his advice is like, if this person beats you the hell up, you should just take the beating because it's worth it. Like, (laughs) Which is kind of funny because technically in the show, he's about the only character who's had a stable relationship with his wife until she died. Like, yeah. But he talks about it like it was abusive, even though you yeah, know it wasn't. Yeah. Like, it's very yeah, It makes odd. it sound like he's only being mean to you because he loves you. And I'm like, that's not a good message, dude. <laughs> no. And, and your message. life is in pretty bad shape when a multiple murderer is sitting across from you telling you about your love life. Like, I, Can we talk also about how, like, I, I feel like fandom forgets how terrible the things that Frank has done are like that scene with the people on the meat hooks. Yeah. Like I can't, I can't believe that you would see that he hung these people alive on meat hooks to slowly die. And no matter how bad those people were and you're still like, ah, he's a good guy at heart. Like, yeah, no, (laughs) you can be a good guy at heart and still be doing terrible, terrible things. And they still deserve some sort of consequences for the terrible, terrible things you have done. But then also there's that whole thing about how like, oh, well, in the war, he was like a war hero. And it's like, well, what's the story about it? The story is that he mass murdered like a a whole ton of people in the war. It's like, well, it was in the war. So that makes him a hero. But he was already a mass murderer 
I mean, we in that we context. kind of predicted that we kind of predicted that last time because part of our conversation about Matt Frank and anticipating it being an issue was that we were anticipating people ignoring those aspects of Frank's character, right? Or ignoring the fact that he had this wife who he was never going to get over, that he would never be a character who would be in a stable relationship after that. So that's kind of a fandom thing. And I don't think we were wrong on that one. I think it just to a degree didn't happen with Matt. Most of the Matt Frank fics I've read actually are about him still being a killer. Like they're they're better about keeping that part intact and yeah. them and having I mean, that disagreement. I'm all in favor of like Matt Frank like hate sex or like whatever. Like I could see that, no problem. But it's I don't know. I feel like some of the ones the stuff about Frank and Karen, the stuff about Frank and Matt or whoever it is, it's just like the discussion that I've seen online is like, well, Frank was really a even Karen seems to believe that Frank is just a good guy who's trying to do the right thing. And I just, as a viewer, I totally don't believe that at all. He's not a good guy, but that's my opinion. And I'm sure other viewers have very different opinions than I do. Um, Lita, there was a shirt I saw <clears throat> on a t-shirt website that like fans could make t-shirts and upload them. And it had a picture of Frank Castle and it said, I put the cute in execute. <laughs> And I, like, rolled out of my chair, dying, <laughs> laughing. Like, I was like, oh, dear Lord. Um, so, oh, yeah, I mean, it, it happens. I've actually seen so, quite a lot of Frank, Matt, like, Alpha, Beta, Omega fic for some reason. Yeah. I feel like that's it, where that ship has shown up the most. That's true. There's a weird amount of it. And sex pollen. Um, sex pollen and ABO. Like, as soon as somebody's, like, in heat or something, that's where Frank shows up. <laughs> I don't know. So let's let's talk about uh, Matt Electra, since we were on the topic of Matt Karen. Because Lita, I know that you would be sad if we didn't talk about Electra and how be. she gets written about in fic or not. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners would call us out if we didn't. So let's talk a little bit about Electra as a character and Matt Electra. You said you love Electra, Lita. She was like I the do. character you came away. She was my favorite part of the season. And I'm just looking at my statistics. Matt Electra is actually uh, less popular than Matt Karen, um, for what that's worth. So what was it about Electra that you, you found so fascinating? I think she's just really, she's really interesting because she's not, it's not clear whether she is entirely human. Um, they didn't really give us a lot of detail about what being the black sky means. Although we get this feeling from her, even as a child, that she just doesn't, she's missing something that like normal people have. Like she, she doesn't see why killing people is bad. She just doesn't understand that. And it's not because she's evil. She's just not fully human in some way and part of it is like her upbringing like when you think about like how was she raised well okay well stick had her at some point when she was a little girl but did he have her from birth it doesn't seem like he did it seems like he got her when she was older like he stole her from the hand how did they raise her that other black sky we saw was this kid who was kept like locked up in chains in a crate was she raised from birth like locked in a box Presumably then, not, though, because Stick was the only one who knew she was a black sky, right? Right, but it's I, I, the impression I got was that he had, like, kidnapped her away from the hand. 
and that the hand had had her first. Uh, but maybe that's wrong. I don't know. He somehow ended up with her, and then he just, like, teaches her to fight people and kill people, and that's her entire life that we see is just fighting and killing and learning about how to fight and kill people. And Styx certainly doesn't have any problem with killing people. We've seen that. And then she goes and gets, like, dumped into this other entire other world where she's supposed to be a diplomat's daughter and i just think a lot about like what was her life like once she got there what did she do she went to school with other kids how does she relate to other people when she spent her entire childhood doing nothing but fighting and killing and then i feel like her and matt have this connection where she really seems to understand Matt and understand his, his dark side, but also she's really interested in his goodness because you see like in, in season two, like when we get towards the end, when she says, when she's dying, she says some line to Matt about like, is this what it feels like to be good? Does it always hurt so much? And I just think that's a really interesting journey for her to be like a human weapon, like totally dehumanized. And yet she still wants to know about love and about being good, even if she feels like she can't quite understand it. See, here's what was interesting to me, too, is I'm disappointed there isn't more electrific, because you're right, like, the story of who she was after she left Stick is interesting, and the story of how she came into Stick's care is interesting. But I especially feel like I've seen so little fic that even talks about Matt's feelings in relation to her, outside of just her death. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like in the sense of he knew they were connected in college, but he suddenly finds out that she was a plant. Like mm -hmm. she, he suddenly randomly found out in the middle of that arc that this woman who he had been in love with for years and he, he'd gone to college with and just thought she was a diplomat's daughter who he fell in love with. That's like he didn't know why she did the whole Roscoe Sweeney thing at the end. He mm -hmm. didn't know why. He finds out that she was raised by Stick, too. Mm hmm. And that mm. Stick did that to him. That's crazy to me. And it gives an extra level of connectedness to the two of them because they mm -hmm. both now know what it was like to be raised by Stick. And he immediately has to jump into their relationship trying to prevent her from killing Stick, right? Mm -hmm. But my question too is, did she? How, how did Stick come to her to say, hey, go to the college and enroll in this school and check in on Matt? Well, I don't think she was in, I don't think she was in school with them. When she was at that party, she was there because it was like her dad Her dad was at the party or something like that. So I got the impression she just was in New York while they were in college. But how does Stick assign that to her? Like, had they seen each other in the intervening years? Did Stick have a role once even she was adopted where he still talked to her? How did he approach her to do that? What were the mission parameters that she right. got of that? What was his arrangement with the people who adopted her? Because, I mean, it, it was pretty strongly implied that they had to get her from stick because they could not get a child through normal channels. Mm -hmm. um, so they're clearly they're adopting her like off the black market and he must have made some kind of deal with them to continue her training because she talks about her capoeira master and, you know, jujitsu and like all this kind of stuff she was doing. Yeah, though I got the impression that was more to cover up the fact that she, once the reveal had happened and it's like she trained with stick, that was just to cover up that she had, training and maybe she kept it up but it wasn't as intensive as she applied you know what though i 
I am interested, though, in whether or not there were still incidences. Like, when she was adopted out, did her parents have to cover up a couple of murders that happened around her? Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, because, yeah, like, she wasn't socialized normally when she came into their family. And did they know, how much did they know about who she was and the troubles that she had, mm-hmm. had mm-hmm. right? Um, I find that really interesting. And, I mean, there's a moment I love that nobody writes about, and I'm so blown away that nobody writes about because I, I rewatched it recently for a fic I was working on, which is that there is a moment in the scene between uh, her and him in the house when she's trying to convince him to kill Roscoe Sweeney where he thinks it's – you can tell that he kind of is getting carried away and thinks it's almost all in good fun, like a dare, when he initially punches Roscoe Sweeney those few times. And then there's a moment when she hands him the knife, mm-hmm. and you can literally see in the expression on Charlie Cox's face the moment that Matt realizes that she actually wants him to kill another human. Mm-hmm. There's, like, this look of total heartbreak and totally, like, his eyes shift from one of love to her to this kind of, like, who am I even looking at? Right. Like, like you can literally see him seeing Electra in a completely new way in that moment that he realizes that she is not daring him in, like, an adrenaline rush, bungee jumping kind of extreme sports, this is fun way. This is, like, she wants him to kill a dude. Yeah. And that's when it's over. Like, you can see that switch flip in his brain. Well, she has she has some line there, too, about, like, I thought you understood me or something like that. Yeah, and... About that same thing. She's like, why, why is this... She's kind of like, this was, for her, the logical conclusion of this activity is kill the guy. And she's kind of thrown off by the fact that Matt doesn't want yeah, to do it. Yeah, and that he wouldn't appreciate that gift. You know, because he's obviously very confused that his girlfriend brought him here, hunted down the guy who killed his dad and is now like, here, this is my gift to you. He's obviously a little confused, but you get the sense that she was always just a whirlwind like that, you know. But like, just the Mm -hmm. fact that he would have accepted that as normal behavior and just gone along with it. And and yeah, I mean, I just wonder what happened after, because Roscoe Sweeney knew who Matt was. My assumption is that Electra would have had to kill Roscoe Sweeney anyway before the cops got there. Do you know what I mean? Like, how does he get out of that house? He's a blind guy in the middle of nowhere in, like, a house they broke into. There have been some there things have about been. that. I have definitely have seen a, a few. And I'm, yeah. I'm just interested in that from all angles. Do you know what I mean? Of how much did he tell Foggy about her? How much was she actually involved in his life? You know, um, is what we saw of their relationship. I mean, fans kind of assume it's consecutive that he met her and they went on all of their dates and that this all happened in a period of a few months. But we don't know that. We don't know that she didn't flit in and out of his life for kind of years coming and going as she pleased from it, right? Um, so I'm just mm-hmm. curious about everything to do with that relationship from from both her perspective, but also from his, because, yeah, fans tend to just kind of go, oh, he's sad about her death. But all the other fucked up psychological yeah. BS that goes into how that relationship went down, they don't tend to address with Matt. Yeah, but although towards, by the end, by the end of the season, I think Matt has basically decided he's just all in with Electra. Like, there's this, there's the part where she's, she has some line about, like, um, you lost more than just the case when he's talking about, you know, how he, he'd screwed mm-hmm. up the case. And he was oh. like, I don't care. I still have you. I don't care. And he's kind of, like, admitted that at that point in his life, 
he's decided that his relationship with her and being with her is more important than literally his entire Nelson and Murdoch career, and he doesn't even care. Yeah. And um, he doesn't care that she kills people. Like, at a certain point, he says something to her along the lines of, we can't keep trying to change each other, you know? Yeah, he tries to, he keeps trying to, like, separate himself from her, and he just yeah. can't do it. But accepting her and having her accept him and them not change each other means he is a-okay with the fact that she kills people. Mm-hmm. Like, he just has to be. And he he has to stop expecting that she's not going to. Yeah. yeah. Which is so interesting in the context of the first half of the season with Frank. Do you know what I mean? Right. Well, at the end, he also has that part with Frank where he's like, well, maybe sometimes your way is the only way. Mm. But then Frank's sort of like, no, and throws him in the water. <laughs> so... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think Electra added so much to that season, and there's so much good stuff if you wanted to write past Electra Matfic that you could just dive into. And there's also like a huge opportunity for trying to figure out what the heck the black sky is. Mm -hmm. Like, I know the first thing that I, the first fic I wrote after season two was all uh, basically a gen fic about Electra and Stick and what black sky is. Or just like making crap up. I have no idea what it is, but there's certainly. It's very vague and not well described. And you know she's not the only one, right? Because there was that other kid who they killed in the first season. Yeah. So there's like a lot of opportunity for people to really dig in and speculate on this stuff. But it just hasn't really happened. Or even to write stick fic. Because people like stick as a character that just has to do with his relationship with her instead of with Matt. There's Mm -hmm. not a lot of it at all. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it'd be nice to see more, but... Again, I mean, fan fiction being what it is, people come, if, like you said, if people come for fluff, if people come for stuff that's not that, it's not going to interest them, mm-hmm. right? But it would be nice to see more of it, because I think there's a lot of opportunities for writers there if they wanted to explore those avenues. So let's let's kind of pull it back, because we, we diverged from Luke Cage onto, you know, the Matt romances in season two, but let's pull it back again to Luke Cage into the Defenders. Um... This week, actually, that we're recording this, the first photos of the Defenders team officially came out. And we got some... Oh, they have. They have? You haven't seen them, Bernie? Oh. You didn't see them yet? I I think I saw the one with them on the front of a cover. Yeah, it's basically a cover shoot. There's, like, a few photos from the, like, behind-the-scenes shooting the cover shoot video. Also, and there's, there's a couple of more kind of ones similar to the cover one. And in all of them, Matt Murdock is adjusting his tie. Because that is his thing. <laughs> and all of them, one. Danny Rand has his shirt open and is like pulling it down yeah. to show his nipple. <laughs> Honestly, if you like That's the shirtlessness not... in Daredevil and you find Finn Jones sexy, I feel like Iron Fist is going to be your they're, show. They're definitely playing it up in those photos, I gotta say. <laughs> but it's because his costume normally has the tattoo on it. And they're not giving him, I think, the costume. So he needs to be showing off that really, really sweet full chest tat. <laughs> As much as possible, that's how you know he's Iron Fist. Which, how do you keep your secret identity when you have a full chest tattoo that gives it away? (laughs) Well, I mean, if nobody knows what the tattoo means, then you're just like, oh, cool tattoo, dude. But, like, if if he goes out in Iron Fist and even if the costume has the tattoo on it and then he, like, brings home a lady as Danny Rand and she sees his chest, it's like, oh, you're Iron Fist. Maybe she thinks he's just a really big (laughs) fanboy. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is that you're assuming that he's going to have a secret identity 
because yeah you might not most of the defenders don't so far like yeah it's getting to the point where a secret identity is just a thing that matt and matt alone does because he's matt i was for now yeah i was actually speculating with lita and with some people um when the photos came out about the fact that i think it's probably telling that he's not in the daredevil suit in those photos because they don't have costumes to wear really yet the other three of them and he's matt murdoch so it's not the three the four defenders it's the three defenders and matt murdoch which made me wonder if he's going to be matt with them more than daredevil in the defenders like if maybe they're gonna meet matt first or how much they're gonna know about his secret identity because those photos imply there's no boundary between his secret identity and them right I'm, i'm just looking forward to the reveal like I hope that they do a really good reveal for Matt's secret identity because that's one of my favorite things. I love identity fake reveals and I want a really good one in canon. (laughs) So let's talk about all the characters in the Defenders because sweet Lord, um, when the Avengers came together, they didn't bring every single character in every single movie with them. Like Peggy Carter and Bucky and, uh, you know, Colonel Phillips weren't hanging out with, uh, you know, Pepper Potts and Happy and Rhodey in the first Avengers movie, which the one of the first promo photos they showed was of Jessica meeting Misty Knight. And like the notion that they're cramming so many characters into Defenders just delights me because you have Foggy, you have, um, I don't know if Karen is in the Defenders. I think it's, I think, I think she yeah, is. you're definitely getting Foggy. You're definitely getting Jerry Hogarth. You're definitely getting Misty Knight. You're definitely getting Electra. Um, Electra. We're definitely, you're definitely getting Electra. Also getting uh, Trish from Jessica Jones. I think they also said you're getting Malcolm from Jessica Jones. Um, so she's bringing a whole crew. Matt's bringing like a whole crew. I Claire is gonna be in there mix somewhere. I'm assuming we might get some Brett Mahoney in Defenders. Like, the list is crazy long of characters they've decided to include. Well, the thing is that you're getting even crossover between Luke Cage had a couple of characters from Daredevil. We haven't talked mm-hmm. about that. They popped up because the, uh, the district attorney, the... Yeah, Brett the, Tower. The woman, the... Uh, Bla- Blake Brett Tower. Tower. He, he Blake rocked Tower. up. And Trish, Trish's voice. And um, Brett was in it too. And, oh, no, um, Brett was in Jessica Jones. Was Brett in, in Luke Cage? Uh, no. No, it's... Um, um, the guy, the guy, the bad guy. Oh, uh... The, the really, really yeah, bad, big bad the, guy. Oh, God, what's that guy's name? Oh, uh, Turk. The, the gunrunner guy. Turk yeah, Turk, Turk, yeah. Turk. Oh, he ended up Turk. in it. And, like, you didn't expect it to see these crossovers, and it sort of, it really does give you the sense yeah. that they're all happening in the same universe. In the same yeah. Yeah, Although, and- to be fair, I mean, they may have all these characters, and they may be in, like, one scene. True. So they might not be important characters. Like, you know, I don't know that I was expecting Claire to be an important character in Luke Cage. She turned out to be. But she was basically like a one scene kind of character in Jessica Jones. Or like Brett in Jessica Jones was like the guy who, one of the cops in the station. Okay. We also know that Jerry Hogarth is going to have a huge and important role in Iron Fist because it was shocking that she was in Jessica Jones because they pulled her character from the Iron Fist comics. Right? So I'm anticipating, like, a lot of her in Iron Fist, which will be interesting. Mm-hmm. And they do have eight episodes. It's not like they're cramming them into an hour and a yeah. half movie, because it's an eight-episode miniseries. So. I think that many characters is going to be so fun, and there's some indications that, again, that giant literal plot hole is going to play a role in Defenders. Um, the Hand will be a, a part of the Defenders, especially with Elektra being there. Um, it's interesting to think about, and I have a feeling, because... What, what's interesting to me is that 
I was surprised when Jessica Jones came out that more Daredevil fans were not really excited for Jessica Jones. And I feel like a lot of Jessica Jones fans who I know never watched Daredevil. They love Jessica Jones. They didn't see Daredevil. Or they'd really like Luke Cage, but they haven't seen either. Or it, there's each one seems to have its own fans, which makes me interested because with Avengers, I think the same thing happened, right? Avengers was the first time that you had all of the Thor fans and all of the Captain America fans and all of the Iron Man fans all coming out for the same movie, which was part of why it was so big. And then after it dropped... That was when you had all of the Thor fans being like, I really want to go back and watch Iron Man now. So are we anticipating that the, that Daredevil fandom is going to get it just much, much, much bigger? I think they've done a pretty good job of keeping the individual series like connected but separate. So it's not like you have to watch each series right. to understand the other. And I feel like Daredevil, because it was their first one, maybe, has kind of a barrier to entry because I feel like I, I, other people may disagree, but I felt like the first half of season one of Daredevil was so boring. It's really yeah, slow. It's it's, you got to watch to at least like seven episodes before you start to get into it, which is quite a big number of episodes for a Netflix yeah. show because people usually give up after like four episodes if they don't like a show. Well, Netflix actually, Netflix did its own internal study that actually showed the tipping point episode for people. So they actually tracked all of their shows. And I'll see if I can find this to link it on the uh, podcast blog. But basically it showed at what episode does somebody who watches to that episode mm -hmm. always watch to the end for the most part. And with a lot of them, it was like four or five. I'm pretty sure Daredevil was actually up at seven or eight. It was on the high end of that. Yeah, yeah, it it has a rough start. It has a pretty rough start. Season two takes off and just keeps going. But season one had a really rough start. So I'm not surprised that a lot of people I know who watched Jessica Jones and liked it have not managed to watch the full first season of Daredevil because they just can't get past the first few episodes. Until Fisk shows up. I know a lot of people who said the same thing. I'll say, oh, I love Daredevil. And they'll say, oh, I watched the first five or six, but then I stopped watching. And I think defenders will probably give them an extra incentive to go back and push through, right? Like, I anticipate yeah. that a lot of people who maybe missed Daredevil are going to see him in Defenders because they were Luke Cage or Jessica Jones fans and be like, oh my, holy shit, mm -hmm. I have to go watch this show now because that was cool. And I also feel, too, like Daredevil was the most, because he has the secret identity, because he looks just like all the other Marvel superheroes, he's he's more traditionally like the white guy who's really beefy looking. Like, it's also the one of the three so far that feels the most superhero-y. So, like, if you're a person who's not into superhero shows, you might accidentally get sucked into Luke Cage and it's halfway through before you're like, oh my god, a guy in a crazy <laughs> costume with a snake name, what the hell am I watching? Versus Daredevil, like, I think... Upfront, people expect it to be more superhero-y because they know about the Ben Affleck movie and they have an awareness of that, right? Well, I didn't have an awareness of that before I went to watch Daredevil. I'd never heard of the movie. <laughs> I, I had forgotten that that movie existed before I watched Daredevil. I never saw it, actually. I think that uh, the Defenders will probably break down that barrier to entry for a lot of people. I'm, I'm actually looking forward to the time between Iron Fist and Defenders where people will be writing about all four characters interacting with a firm grasp on canon characterization before the Defenders comes and basically just screws up everyone's interpretation. 
Well, I I was able to go to a um, a Q and A um, with uh, Charlie Cox and Eldon Henson at a convention near me, and it was super exciting. But one of the things that amused me the most was that Charlie Cox basically sounded like he's already shipping Danny Rand and Matt Murdock in his head. Like they they basically <laughs> were like, "What's the most exciting thing to you about them all coming together in the Defenders?" And his answer was like, "Having read the comics." I just want to see how Matt's going to interact with Danny Rand because I love that relationship so much in the comics and it's so great and I just want to see him and Danny hanging out. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I do too and I can't wait for that. And I hope that some of the controversies around Iron Fist in a similar way to Doctor Strange don't keep people kind of away from it because I do genuinely think it'll be an interesting show. Like, Danny is such a fantastic character in the comics. He's so much fun. His bromance with Luke Cage. Oh my God. If after Iron Fist, if if Luke Cage even gets to pop up in Iron Fist, I just want all of the Luke Danny fic. Like all the Luke Danny friendship fic, all of the Luke Danny ship fic. Just in the comics, those guys are like, it's such a bromance. It's amazing. And I'm also super psyched because um, the early promo stuff for the for Iron Fist has, and for Defenders, they've indicated that Danny is the only one who kind of initially in Defenders really knows what's going on, which really translates to Danny is the one who comes from a magical background and believes magic is real and knows that the hand are mystical. Everyone else still thinks it's BS. So I am so excited for that initial conversation when they're all talking about their origins and they're just like, chemical spill, radiation, like... Um, you know, this or that. And then they're like, how'd you get your powers, Danny? And he's like, I punched the heart of a dragon. And just, he has to explain to them the context of the world he knows exists. And, and he has to be the one to be like, I'm magical. Like I have mystical magic powers. Okay. So let's, uh, let's wrap it up on some fic wrecks. Ah, Yay. Um, I asked you guys to bring either Defenders-related or Daredevil fic recs um, from post-season two that in some way illustrate the trends we've been talking about. So not so much the ones that just ignore season two, but some ones that actually show its impact on the fandom in some way. Uh, so, Bertie, what did you bring today? Um, I brought The Night Nurse by I.G. Rock Spock. I hope I pronounced that name right. Um, it's about Claire Temple. Um, I actually, I only found it last night when I was looking for Rex through my, through the Luke Cage tag, and I'm really glad I did, because it's, Luke, it's pretty, it's pretty much Claire Temple being the hero, becoming the night nurse, and just, um, dealing with the fallout of, dealing with the aftermath of Luke Cage, and also, it has Matt, it doesn't just whitewash over what happened at the end of season two, it's got Matt depression, it's dealing and him her helping him and him helping her though it's that's a minor part because it's really focused on claire being kick-ass and just becoming an actual night nurse and it's really cool yeah i'm looking at this one now birdie and it i i like that author a lot and it was written for yuletide which might have been why i missed it in the kind of Mm. rush of all that thing i'm glad you wrecked uh that's funny i wrecked a claire one though i had assumed that author's name was pronounced i grok spock so I'm now I'm really curious <laughs> That's just how, me being really how bad. that author intended their name to That's be just pronounced. Me being really bad at if they're listening, maybe Sorry. they'll write in and let us know. I have no idea. Um, but yeah, I'm glad that you wrecked a Claire fic because, like I said, we did not give her enough love in the last episode. So that'll be awesome for anyone out there who's a Claire fan. Um, and Lita, what did you bring? 
I brought an Electrific. It is called Don't Get Cut on My Edges by Ecstasis Wings, which I'm also probably pronouncing wrong. Um, it's basically Electra's POV from um, like pre-canon through that scene in season two where she's sleeping on Matt's couch and he's watching her sleep. Uh, and I really like this one because it really digs into Electra's character and her kind of perspective and why she does the things that she does and how she feels about it and you know the the contrast between her how much she loves Matt and how much she feels like maybe she shouldn't because she's been taught you know not that love is not like her goal in life it's it's like a weakness because we've seen Stick say that to to Matt specifically I'm sure he said the same thing to Electra. Um, so anyway, I really enjoy this one. It is Matt and Electra, and it's pretty short. It's like 2,000 words-ish. Okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> I really liked it. So I actually brought two. Um, broke my own rule. I brought two because they illustrated two just completely different aspects of, of kind of post-season two Daredevil and Defenders fandom, and they were so different. And I feel like kind of weird about wrecking the first one I'm going to wreck, which is called A Dog's Life by Ornate Grip. Um, only because I'm, okay, so I am going to wreck it, but I'm going to wreck it with the caveat of I totally think it's only for a specific type of a person who would want to read it. And I'm wrecking it not be it's a great, it's really well written. It also, and I hope the author doesn't hate me because this is not a dig at all. It's really well written. But it, it's one of those fics that, like, kind of weirdly, grossly mis mischaracterizes both the two people in the ship in it to make its ship work. And it's the Foggy Frank ship. Ah, uh, yes, I, I do know this fic. Yeah. So when I say mischaracterizes, it's it's just kind of um, this person who wrote it, like, they ship them. And like I said, it's well written, it makes sense, and they've they've worked through the thought processes. But it's it's... Foggy Frank is one of those weird crack ships that showed up that, like, the people who love it really, really love Foggy Frank as a ship. And the problem is, is that Frank Castle, again, is not a character who necessarily you would want to domesticate. And Foggy as a character, more than Matt, objects to, like, 99% of what Frank does and who he is, Right. So the, that's the problem I have with, like, the principle of, of this. But at the same time, it was so well written that as I was reading it, I was like, oh, my God, I'm totally into this for some reason right now. <laughs> and it's 68,000 words. And it is about Foggy adopting Frank's dog um, that he has in season two. And then Frank, having escaped from jail, kind of finding him so he can pet the dog and see the dog. And then just kind of starting to live in Foggy's apartment. And the two of them having, like, a romance for the ages that's, that's super shippy and, and super just too sweet for either of those characters. But it works in the context of the fic. And... Um, I, I thought it would be an interesting one to wreck for people who are interested in changes in Daredevil Phantom in Season 2, not only because that pairing obviously couldn't have existed, but because one of the tags is no reconciliation between Matt and Foggy, and a good chunk of the fic is a reconciliation fic where Matt is trying to reconcile with Foggy, and Foggy is, like, rejecting that. 
So it is obviously also, in addition to working through stuff with Frank as a character, working through this particular author and their opinions about the Nelson and Murdoch divorce and how it shook out and who's to blame. And this is one of the fewer ones that actually comes down firmly on the side of, like, Matt's a piece of shit, basically, is is the attitude of the fic throughout. But it actually works through stuff with Foggy that most fan fiction writers, like, forget about. So it deals with, like, the fact that Foggy got shot in season two and how he felt about that and some of the ways that he was thinking about stuff that Matt did. So it's it's like... I'm going to wreck it because I think it's a really fascinating fic and it's well written. It's good. It it sells you on that pairing. But at the same time, I know there's going to be people who are like, oh, you wrecked this thing, but it just is so off base on so many levels about stuff. And that's why I wrecked it because I find that so interesting. (laughs) Again, no disrespect to that author. I'm saying I love this fic, Um, but it just has to do a lot of work to make the principles of what it's trying to do work. Um, so that's the first one. And then the other one I wanted to wreck is called Eyes on Harlem. And it's just because I really wanted to make sure we gave a due to the whole Netflix Defenders universe. And Eyes on Harlem is just little short drabbles about the events of Luke Cage. And this is the summary. The events of Luke Cage as seen from the rest of the cast of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So it's just short drabbles about, you know characters in the MCU watching what's happening in Harlem on the news and how it impacts them or doesn't, you know, like S.H.I.E.L.D. coming in from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to clean up stuff in Harlem after or, um, you know, how it impacts Foggy working at Hogarth, Chow and Benowitz and how it impacts Hogarth and their firm to have this stuff going on in Harlem. And and it kind of it's even got a segment of Deadpool as characterized by Ryan Reynolds, <laughs> commenting on what's happening with Luke Cage that's super meta and fourth wall and very entertaining. Uh, and it just runs through so many characters. It's got Ant-Man characters. It's It's got characters from all aspects of the MCU and what's going on with them. So it's, it's pretty good, and I wanted to call it out as well. Um, so do we have any final, final thoughts on Defenders or Daredevil or kind of where we think this fandom's headed? I'll I'll say this that um it's going to be an interesting year. I can a hundred percent say that it's going to be. We've got so much new content coming. I, a lot and like the season two of Daredevil shows a good show can still break can still break a fandom when it, it presents things that the fans weren't expecting. And I'm just I'm hoping that we get more that the all the content we get um will turn into more thick and more fandom and more discussing, but. At the same time, I can't predict if it will. Because it just, we predicted more fit craft the season two and look at what it did. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So. Lita, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, I'm, I'm just really excited to see all of the characters together. And I am so happy that Electra is coming back in Defenders. <laughs> that's yeah that's gonna be uh, honestly like i was at a point where i was kind of with everything else i was like ah, uh, i don't know do i really want to be as into this stuff do i really want to keep watching this and then i heard that electra was going to be in defenders and i was like oh yep i'm watching it no question anymore because i i don't really have that much interest in iron fist and maybe i'll be surprised because i didn't care about jessica jones either but then i watched it and loved it so i'm hoping that netflix will continue to impress me 
with their shows. I am just looking forward, like I said, to Luke Danny and Matt Danny and Colleen Wing Misty Knight, which, oh my god, you can fem slash ship it in the comics so easily because they're besties and I want all of it. And Iron Fist, I think, is going to add a whole slew of characters people really like and, and can get into, into the fandom. And then Defenders, I'm just I'm so psyched. It's going to be really fun. <laughs> So that is our show. Thanks again to Birdie and Lita, and thanks to you for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check out our website and our Tumblr at theotpodcast.com. There is some discus commenting available there if you access it through the actual website. You can also join us on Twitter, where we are at theotpodcast, and tweet about the show using the hashtag theotpodcast. Word of mouth and support from fans is why I keep making this show. Uh, It's how I find my contributors. It's why they do the show too. So please help us spread the word. Uh, Tell your friends. Leave us an iTunes review. Uh, Just participate in our social media or our online conversations between episodes because it all helps. Uh, It all inspires me to keep going uh, and it helps me to make sure that this show kind of continues along. We do really appreciate all of it. So thank you so much. Uh, Thanks always again to Peter Tchaikovsky for our theme song and our logo. And finally, your kink is not my kink, and that's okay.